Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly. Uh, yearly? It's been a year, but this is episode 166, recorded on February 3rd of 2023. And uh, I have been away. I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, and a little bit under the weather today, but it's all right. We'll, we'll survive it uh, because this is a conversation that needs to be restarted. Today, today's an important day. Uh, today is a day that marks one one day minus a uh, sorry one year minus a day uh, since the podcast had been put on hiatus, and the reason for that was I uh, you know I, I didn't feel like it you know uh, that that's it uh, there was a lot of conflict in the world and it's close to me so just for reference uh, we live about three hundred and fifty kilometers. 215 miles from the border of Ukraine. And it's close. We're 10 minutes from the Black Sea. And so when conflict was starting to erupt, and then did, and has continued, uh, I didn't feel like podcasting. So we're back at it now. And the topic for today is all about the reason for that hiatus. And with me for that conversation is none uh, none other than my very good friend, Steve Brazel. Uh, Steve, thank you so much for welcoming me back to the podcasting world. How are you? I am doing great. Thank you for having me on your first show back. And let me just say, which I've said to you privately many, many, many times, I can't wait until you start Photo Geek Weekly again. And it's here. And congratulations coming back because you've got a lot to say. And I think you're going to have fun being back. I appreciate that. And uh, I already have the next week lined up. Uh, Alan Attridge is coming next week, uh, and he's in Germany. And, and so uh, time zones are going to be less of an issue with uh, with him. And, and who knows who will be next after that. But uh, this is a special episode, and it's going to be deep, and it's going to be heavy. Uh, so just forewarning, anybody listening to this looking for uh, a light and, uh, and, and happy show, you, you might get that next week. But this week is going to be serious, and we're going to cover uh, the topics of, uh, you know, photojournalism and uh, and how war uses imagery and, and, and all this. We'll take the stories one at a time, and uh, we're going to start with story number one, which is, I'm going to say, probably the heaviest, and then things get... I don't want to say they get lighter as things goes on, but uh, the hardest one is story number one, which is a list of journalists uh, killed during the Russo-Ukrainian war. And I, I just, I look at these names and, and, and I see it's not just Ukrainians. Uh, there, there's a number of people in here. I heard uh, in-depth um, uh, commentary and uh, a news coverage of Brent Renaud and Max Levin uh, and there's a lot more on this list. Journalists that they were covering this conflict all the way back until uh, May of 2014. Uh, keep in mind that this is not just a new conflict. And I look at this list and I see uh, people, cameras in their hand, trying to document the world around them that were killed because they were trying to bring that news to the people. And that's, it's harsh, it's powerful, and 
uh, it should have never happened. I mean, if if the wars <laughs> followed proper rules and <clears throat> protocols, but they never do. And so here we are. Uh, Steve, what what do you think when you look at this list? So, again, this is going to be a deep episode. I feel like I need to just reference panda bears now and then to put a smile on people's faces. But this is such... <laughs> This is such an important conversation, and I, I have to start with the fact that while we're talking about the, the Russian-Ukrainian conflict, this has been happening with photojournalists for all of history. Yeah. Through every war, photojournalists have put themselves at risk to bring the information to the public, sometimes information that the powers that be within those wars don't want the public to know. In this particular case, this list on Wikipedia includes not only people from the countries involved, but there's Fox News correspondents here, there's freelance and independent correspondents here and, and photojournalists. And one of the things about this page, I read through this whole page, one of the things I like is the fact, A, they referenced that this war didn't start a year ago. They referenced that this is the Russo-Ukrainian conflict. It started in yeah, 2014, start not right. 2022, because it started when Russia Ill illegally annexed Crimea. And I just, I, I really want to stress that these people that do this and put themselves at risk, we all owe a great debt of gratitude to. Always have. I mean, imagine that the people that were hiding their film canisters um, after the Tiananmen Square uh, massacre, right? Great example. And, and, and those photos did get out uh, on a much tighter scenario. Y you can't silence the truth when photojournalists are impassioned by their work and they're putting their lives on the line. And sometimes they lose their lives on that line. Uh, and, and we've seen that here. But that also brings up the question of, uh, you know, photojournalism is important. Uh, don't get me wrong. And they try that there's no way to do it concretely, but they try to have a less biased approach to things. But uh, citizen journalism is also a uh, very valuable thing where uh, is soldiers uh, even taking photos uh, of you know, certain accomplishments and, and what have you, but, but people documenting what has happened to them. That never made the news stories 20 years ago, but it is now. And so photography is taking on a different role and that is very biased and, and everybody's going to have their opinions and photojournalists in the traditional way should have been trained to remove as much bias as possible from their their storytelling, although that's that's not possible uh, to remove it all. And you choose your focal length and you choose your frame and, and you choose what is in the frame and out of the frame. And there is inherently a bias towards the story that you were trying to tell. And um, a lot of these people uh, had been uh, shot or killed in uh, rocket strikes or shellings or airstrikes. And, uh, you know, I, I think that we we deserve to to look at these people. I mean, check out the link. Uh, there, there is a a semi detailed look at every one of these people that had been killed, and just 
remember them. Do me a favor, Photo Geek Weekly listeners. Just take a look at that. Read the article. That's all I'm asking. Um, just make sure that that stays stays in your mind. I think. Um, and there's a follow up story and, to this. Oh yeah. But Steve. before before you get into that, let me interject something here because this is important. Something you said about citizen journalism. Journalists in general, not just photojournalists, but journalists are in general are trained to do their job. And yes, they are trained to try and be unbiased, but everybody, you know, we tell people when you take a picture, what's the point? To tell a story. Right? Yeah. Every picture we take, we're trying to tell some kind of story. And so when, as you mentioned, a trained photojournalist tries to be unbiased, but chooses to use a 70 to 200 instead of a 51.8. And, you know, you're allowed generally in journalism to crop in post, to color correct in post, to do dodging and burning in post, depending on the outlet. Those photojournalistic yeah. integrity rules vary to an extent from outlet to outlet, but they're they're pretty standard where you can do what you could do in a darkroom. Yeah. They are making decisions still to tell the story that they wanted to cover and went there to, but that's a key point. They chose to go there. Citizen journalists on the other hand, of any kind, whether they're blogging or taking pictures. That is inherently one-sided. You only see what that person without journalistic training wants you to see. You don't see what happened, same with journalism too, but you don't see what happened before or after the camera rolled. But here's where it really matters. The raw honesty of citizen journalism it's kind of like reality TV. Like there's certain there's, reality TV shows. I often there's with, there's with, fear, but there's there's certain reality TV I can't watch because I know that you're acting to the camera or it's being edited a certain way. But there's other reality TV where there's so many external pressures on you that it becomes difficult over time to put up an act, and that often is citizen journalism. Yeah, it it it, it allows us to see something without sanitization. And that is critical for us to judge the situation. Well, y yes, um, and 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 just like that, we wouldn't have seen, uh, you know, the inside of the plane landing on the Hudson, uh, you know, without having citizen journalism there recording those moments. It's critically important, um, but it is also important to understand that it does come from a perspective of bias. And uh, for us to truly judge the scenario, we need to have all facets of bias to understand it and truly appreciate it. Um, and we can assume what some of those other angles are, but we can't know it until we see it. And uh, right now, I, you know, for example, I have a, uh, a friend in, in Russia, in Moscow, and uh, I'm not going to say who he is or what he does, but he is vehemently against the uh the conflict and uh his bank accounts have largely been frozen by uh you know all of the uh cutting russia off of the swift system and, and everything else so he has given me uh the mo the money that he has accumulated from online print sales to forward to ukrainian aid and more on that in the intermission as to, to what i've been doing to, to that effect but uh, you know, that, that's another facet of it. 
that there and there's there's 12 more or more you know it's it's different you know if i was living in uh in occupied ukraine or occupied georgia or transnistria uh part of moldova or moldova there's so many different viewpoints from this perspective uh you know if i was born and raised in the baltics uh, i might have a different perspective on things as well and citizen journalism from all of these angles will tell you a different story and it's important that we listen to them all, uh, I think, uh, and, and be good citizens of the world and actually pay attention to all of these angles and uh, make our opinions for ourselves uh, as educated as possible and not just listening from one fountain uh, of, of speech. All right. Agreed, 100%. So uh, a follow-up to this is, is one uh, interview with a photojournalist uh, done by Vanity Fair, uh, published on August 24th of, uh, of 2022 by Alison Schaller. And uh, Larry Towell, I think, is the, uh, the photographer here, and he's the one being interviewed. And the title of the piece is, If They Are Crushed, It Will Be Temporary. That was in quotes what one war photographer has learned from documenting uh, the, the conflict in Ukraine. And this is not a photographer that went in in 2022. This is uh, somebody that has seen the beginnings of the conflict back as far as 2014. Uh, I mean, who knows if the conflict officially started beyond that, but this is somebody that's intimately involved with what is going on. And uh, Steve, w what are your thoughts on this? I I'm assuming you read the piece. And uh, I, have gone I definitely through, read the piece and, 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 and you've gone through the imagery. And I, I got to say, but before you give opinions, the imagery is as powerful, possibly more powerful than, than the words as photojournalism tends to be. Continue, Steve. I, th that's basically, that's funny. That's a, pretty much what I was going to say was I did read the piece and, and the photographs are what carry the piece. Uh, Larry Towell has done seven trips to Ukraine over eight years by choice. He's documenting the civil unrest. He's documenting supposed Russian war crimes. But I love a quote that's in this article. He's capturing the, quote, incredible spirit of resistance from the Ukrainians. That is being documented in its key. And there's one other quote that he, that he told, again, this is Vanity Fair, and it's a really well done article with wonderful photos. And here's what he said. He said, we have to be, and this, by the way, this goes for any type of photography, in my opinion, but holds really, really true here. We have to be able to create work that will be remembered, and we have to be able to create work that will be analyzed, that will be used as evidence, that will be a part of history. That, yeah. when you look through this, you get that from these photos. You literally get you are looking at documentation and it's well, powerful. But but he also had constraints too, right? Like you, you couldn't photograph a building that was uh, over three stories tall, right? And like you, you couldn't be in certain places. You couldn't do certain things because the government told you not to and you had to basically did, obey. Did you see the one part he said, Ukrainian civilians, both professional and semi-professional journalists as it were, were posting images as they took them. The Russians then used satellite technology to locate and match the place the image was taken. And within 10 minutes, 
were dropping rockets on those locations. So that again, that's a part of photography nowadays is GPS and satellite imagery. Well, and that kind of leads into the next story, uh, which is (laughs) it's, it's inventive uh, as a use of photography. And I'm kind of on the fence as to whether or not uh, this type of behavior, I mean, people are pushed up against the wall. So I expect people to do anything, but uh, on to story number two, which really details nicely into this. Yeah. Can I add one thing? Yeah. When I looked at this vanity, and I'm trying to implore people to go read this article and look at these pictures, because when I read this, it struck me. There, I have a favorite photography quote from a music photographer, legendary music photographer, Bob Gruen. But this quote to me immediately came to my mind as I saw these pictures. A good photograph can show you the facts of what is going on. A great photograph can show you the feelings. Yeah. When you look at these pictures, if you are not moved, I'm not sure what's wrong with you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and photography, again, I mean, you're documenting history uh, through story number one. And, and photography needs to do that. It absolutely needs to do that. Uh, and I'm glad that people are making it one of the most documented, visually and by other accounts, uh, conflict that we've seen. Uh, the more it's documented, uh, the hope is that uh, people will change their mind about doing this type of thing in the future. But photography can be, I mean, it can be art, it can be photojournalism, but photography can also be a weapon directly. And you hinted at that, Steve. And so the next story um, from uh, a Business Insider, Ukrainian hackers, and I got a I don't want to say hacker. There's no hacking being done here. Uh, I mean, psychologically, perhaps, but not, uh, you know, uh, on a computer basis. They say hackers. And every reference to this that I found said hackers. So, yeah. And by the way, that's that's a clickbait title, in my opinion. And they didn't need to do that because it's, in my opinion, it's not accurate to what's happening. Yeah. Um, But, well, I'll read the title as it is. Ukrainian hackers created fake profiles of attractive uh, attractive women to trick Russian soldiers into sharing their location, the report says. And days later, the base was blown up. So imagine uh, that you have a, uh, a, a group of Russians that they're all about the sex when they're a group of men in, uh, you know, uh, there, there's no sheep around. I don't know what they're going to do, but the, the idea, sex. He- I'm just going to say you said <laughs> the sex, like it the did. Google. <laughs> yes. Uh, <clears throat> but the, the, the point is that you have a bunch of, uh, poorly trained military men that, uh, they're, they're looking for something and they're on the dating apps and the apps have attractive women that are appearing to be interesting to them. And uh, the, the women court these men, if that's, you know, you can go one way or the other, uh, bring them uh, up to uh, a level of interest, uh, a sufficient level of interest that they take selfies of where they are and show their bravado. And those selfies then reveal their location, and that uh, that sends missiles their way, and then they die. And 
that is a tactic that uh, the Ukrainians have been doing. And I mean, to some degree, I, I agree. And I think that, yeah, you know what? Use every means at your disposal to uh, to get rid of the invaders. And, and that should be allowed. But on a technical basis, that's against the Geneva Conventions. Um, you know, if you look at it, from the perspective of uh, that these are non-combatant people that are entering into the conflict. Uh, and it's weird because the Geneva Conventions were written uh, in an era where this would have never been part of the thought process. Uh, and those conventions also allow for espionage, which this would probably uh, qualify under. Um but uh, perfidy is 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 the word that would have been described to say like if you and and the the Nazis did this in World War II if you were to like put on the uniforms of the Americans and rush into conflict uh, wearing American uniforms to trick them to think that you are their allies and then start shooting at them well yeah that's not okay uh, this is a very different type of scenario here uh, Steve what are your thoughts on on uh, basically coaxing the Russians to reveal their uh, their locations because they wanted the sex. The sex. <laughs> I'm going to remember that one. So here's the deal. These are Ukrainian hackers, but they're not <laughs> hacking. That's really the yeah. point that I, I want to make with that title. I mean, the way it's worded, it's te probably technically accurate, but Ukrainian hackers created fake profiles, but they're not hacking what I love is, though, he recruited 30 hackers to create a group that they nicknamed Hack Your Mom, which I just think that's brilliant. I'm sorry. Here's the here's the deal on, on perfidy, though. Perfidy is a war crime. I always think of it as the Monty Python Trojan rabbit, right? You're going in pretending right. to be a rabbit, but you're not. While that's a war crime, and I'm going to use a quote from the definition of, of perfidy. In the context of war, perfidy is a form of deception in which one side promises to act in good faith, such as raising a flag of truce, with the intention, premeditated in other words, of breaking the promise, right? Once the enemy, you know, is exposed. Here's my thing. I don't think that this would be a war crime. I don't think that this would fall under the Geneva Convention because these are not soldiers. These are civilians. And I don't believe that it covers anything that is not an operating army of a state. That's that's my opinion. But yeah. again, this one person who's Nikita, I don't know how to pronounce the last name, 30-year-old IT pro, pro from Kharkiv, what they did here, I think the Russians wanted to prove that they're warriors, and they got them to prove it, and it it worked. It's, it's intel to me. Yeah. Uh, and, and how you, how you gather that Intel, uh, I think is, um, it, it's a moving target based on what the traditional idea of war crimes would have been. And, you know, if, if you were to have, I remember a story, uh, of some women in world war two that would seduce the, uh, the Nazis and there's a book on this. I, I have it. It's in storage, and, and I haven't read it yet, uh, unfortunately. But they, they would seduce the Nazis, take them away, and then murder them. And 
they would go to upscale places where you would have uh, not just the soldiers, like this was officers and things. And you'd cart these officers away for a good time and they'd never For the back. sex? For the sex. Yes, exactly. Uh, and, you know, I, I think, okay, um, I'm okay with that. Uh, and regardless of where other people draw the lines, I, I think that that's, that's fine and use the skills of today to do the same thing. Um, so powerful people doing important things and uh, using photography literally as a weapon of war. So I, I don't know. I, it, it's hard for me to think of my art form being a weapon, um, but I've used my art uh, for the greater good. And this kind of is the intermission section of what I've been up to Real quick, before you do that, can I ask you a question related to to that story? Yeah. On your camera, do you have location information being stored in your photos or is GPS on your photos turned off? It is on. Um, And uh, it's got an app on my phone that uses the GPS coordinates of my phone via Bluetooth to embed that into my images. And I find that as a very powerful um, uh, organizational tool. Right. You know, if I want to sort out the images that I've taken in a particular location uh, and I've gone to that location a number of times, but it's far from home and I can't remember the exact uh, date and time that I was there, I could say, well, when was I in the Yukon? And uh, all of my images from those trips up there, they have GPS information and I can sort that in Lightroom based on that location. So that's your professional photos, though. What about your snapshots of the family at home? For example, my phone, the actual camera app on my phone, GPS is generally turned off. If I'm on vacation, I turn it on and I'm, you know, if I post that, I don't care that somebody realizes I'm in Rome, but generally around my neighborhood, I have it turned off. It's always on. Um, yeah. So it's, it's always visible. Uh, I don't know what apps actually utilize that information. And uh, for example, on Flickr, I've turned off the uh, the geolocation data now that I've moved uh, in, into Bulgaria. But uh, so it, it doesn't show that publicly. Uh, and I might, I don't know, know if it even records it if I've flipped that switch, if I could flip it back, if it then shows the location information of new images, or if it just tried downloading a picture. Entire- yeah, Act like could, a third I, party and try downloading one, see if it's still in there. And run it through Exif tool and, and see what data is there. Uh, but but actually, when I've done that in the past, and Flickr's a bit odd about this, um, I get no Exif data out of it. It displays it on the website. Uh, so you get all the camera information uh, there. But when I download the picture, that information isn't present in the downloaded file. Interesting. And that may have changed. This was years ago. But... Um, I do want to, you know, I've mentioning Flickr here. I put a, a link in the show notes to a series of images that I have created over the past year that I have deliberately placed in the public domain uh, in support of Ukraine. And initially, again, we're close. So when the war started, uh, days later, less than a week or so, the, the refugees started arriving in Varna. And Varna is a city about 20 minutes away from here. Uh, it's where my daughter goes to school. It's very close. So we knew that help was needed because the governments of all of the surrounding countries 
did not have a system prepared to to house, to feed, to clothe these people. And some of them were covet, uh, coming in uh, luxury SUVs. Yeah, great. Welcome. You're probably okay. But a lot of them were arriving on buses with nothing but the shirt on their backs. Mothers and children and uh, and the elderly. And uh, I started, well, I mean, initially, before I even started the series, I thought, okay, well, how much room do I have on my visa? Let's just go and buy as much aid as possible. When we heard that uh, the the big sports complex in the city was being used to house the refugees initially. And it was a kind of a unorganized affair. There was no government officials involved. It was just, okay, everybody was coming together in a specific location. You're trying to organize things. And we were bringing carloads of food and uh, clothing and bed sheets even because people were sleeping in gymnasiums and things. Uh, And I decided, you know, let's let's start a, a series of images in support of Ukraine, and uh, that started with a an image of a, a water droplet in a dandelion seed. I called that one "Jewel of Ukraine" and public domain. And I, I've I've seen people use it in articles uh, as profile photos. Uh, it's it's gone places, and I'm very happy about that. But what I was even happier about is the the narrative that was generated from that. Basically, I said, if anybody wants to give some money, uh, I can buy more stuff for these people that are arriving. And I can't provide you a charitable tax receipt or anything. And I really don't have any accountability, but just trust me on this. And I received thousands of dollars to help support these refugees to, to continue. And, and it's not just the food and whatever else, but uh, I'll give you one example. When we were going to that sports center, still in the unorganized phase uh, of things, uh, you know, we they had some shopping carts available so that we'd fill the shopping cart from the, the, the trunk of the car and bring it down into the center. And at the, to- uh, at the top of the shopping cart was some juice boxes. And we were bringing that in. And one of the organizers, clipboard in hand or what have you, uh, they were frantically trying to, to keep things together. They saw the juice, uh, juice boxes and just ran with them. And I didn't see them again. Uh, until we finished unloading everything. Then we came back out and every one of the kids, and there was maybe 30 or 40 kids that were sitting around in the chairs waiting, were drinking those juice boxes that we had purchased. And uh, they had been immediately delivered to to the kids that needed something. And that was that was a moment I, I, I can't understand the feelings of. It's like you did something really powerful and it was just juice boxes, but it was really powerful in that moment to these people that needed it right then and there. Um, the There's a, a Ukrainian cultural center in, in the city that eventually took over a lot of the operations, uh, and they were much more accountable to things uh, and tried to uh, put on the books exactly what we were donating and, and for what and when. And they were bringing aid, not just to the refugees that were in Bulgaria, but into Ukraine. Uh, so, uh, to the citizen soldiers, uh, the territorial defense, uh, as it's, uh, uh, called, and we supplied them with, uh, a generator and with medical supplies and, you know, tourniquets and surgical sponges and all that type of stuff. And, and, and I felt good about that too. 
and we donated some uh, additional funds towards the purchase of a drone. And I, it's my hope that I could buy like a thermal imaging drone or something uh, in the future, but those cost like, you know, $5,000, $6,000. So it's not exactly a, a cheap thing to, uh, to, to throw in, but I know that they are still bringing aid back into Ukraine. But I made this whole series, uh, and it's a continuing series over the course of 2022 and now into 2023. And, and Steve, uh, you, you've been following me over this series, and you've seen a lot of these. What do you think of, uh, of what's been done? So the first image alone to me, go look at at this gallery on Flickr. If nothing else for that first image, I don't know. You know how it when you see shots sometimes and you may see 10 amazing shots, but certain images speak to you, certain images for some reason, whether it be the composition or the, the uh, you know, feeling that you get from whatever it is. That first image, the dandelion water droplet, just really affects me. I love that. The clear definition of colors. What I like about this is I know you. And I know what your photography means to you. I don't just mean from your heart or from your mind or that it's your baby that you've created these. It's your livelihood. You make your living from your photography and you make good money from your photography. And people, we've talked about this on the show before, people infringe your work and they have problems when they infringe your work, right? You you yep. go after <laughs> yes, them. Yes, they do. There's, there's, there's no secret about that. And that to me means something here that you won't say yourself, but to me that means something here. This is how you make your living, and these are amazingly powerful images that you could make money on, and you've put them in the public domain, and for an amazing cause. So, yeah, I just you won't pat yourself on the back, but I'm going to pat you on the back for for the rest of us. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. I mean, I I didn't want to profit off of the conflict. Um, that's basically what it boils down to. Uh, ethically, I felt like that was not going to be a uh, you know something that I could live with. And uh, and there's some really creative work here, uh, some ultraviolet fluorescence using uh, diamonds stacked together. I love that one. That was so much fun to create because some of the uh, impurities in raw, uh, tiny, imperfect diamonds uh, caused them to fluoresce. And I was able to stack some of them together. I even sourced out a butterfly wing. Uh, after doing some research for uh, butterflies that had blue and yellow as adjacent colors. And of course, those are the uh, national colors of Ukraine. And, uh, and so I did an image of a butterfly wing up close from Ghana, I think it was. And, uh, and that was fun too. But I, I went... <sighs> One of the things I'm, I guess I could say I'm proud. I mean, <clears throat> they say pride is a sin, but um, I I had the the idea of taking the Ukrainian coat of arms, uh, the the trizub, uh, and uh, and making a giant cookie cutter out of it. Not not for cookies, but for dough. And so this giant dough cutter, it's about twelve or thirteen inches tall, and. Uh, I worked with a, a good friend of mine uh, in the UK, a uh, 3D modeler, to, to make this. And uh, Ian McKinnell uh, is the guy, and maybe I'll put his link in the show notes too, but he he helped me make it at no cost. 
and then I had it 3D printed, and then I made bread shaped in the uh, the national coat of arms of Ukraine. <coughs> and then I delivered that bread to the Ukrainian Cultural Center to give to the refugees that were coming. And I mean, bread is a it's an important food in in Europe. Uh, I mean, anywhere really, but uh, in, in Europe, it, it has some significant meaning. And in that particular shape and form, sprinkled with cheese and seeds and stuff on top, um, it was, I, I think it made a difference for people. And, uh, you know, we, we continue to, to, to make that bread. I haven't given some to the cultural center in a while, but maybe they should do that again, do an, another run of uh, bread to them. But uh, whenever we have guests over, we, we make that and we make sure that that symbolism is seen and acknowledged. And I made that, um, uh, it's a Creative Commons license, uh, so you can take that and print your own 3D model of that dough cutter and, uh, and make your own bread. Uh, the symbolism and the support that you can make as a creative individual, I think we all need to embrace. Um, I remember this was back in 2009. Uh, my wife and I, uh, then uh, my fiance, were uh, we were traveling across Europe, and we ended up in London. And we went to the Royal uh, War Museum or Military Museum. I can't remember the exact name, but they had a, an art exhibition on at the time, and it was paintings made by Holocaust survivors, and it was haunting. And I still remember it to this day. It was so powerful that those people depicting what they went through, uh, you know, in uh, oils on canvas uh, and possibly other media as well, it was beyond memorable. Uh, and I'm glad that they did that. And so, I mean, I'm not in the conflict. My last name, by the way, is Ukrainian. And uh, my family uh, immigrated to Canada from a, a small village, uh, Ulichne, from the, uh, the, the Lviv Oblast, and they've been relatively safe. And I've reconnected with my family since then, um, uh, just in this past year. And apparently, my grandfather, uh, his father has a cousin that is still living. And, uh, and I had a conversation with him, and the first thing that they said when we were having a, it was a big family gathering, uh, and one of the relatives speaks English, and so they were able to translate. And the first thing, the first question that they asked is, "When are you going to come and visit?" Made me feel really good. So uh, hopefully this summer, we will be going to Ukraine to to visit family and reconnect with that. So the whole series has a lot of meaning for me. Check it out, uh, and that's a large part of what I've been doing in this past year. So there's your intermission, folks. Uh, Steve, anything else to add? No, I, I feel like I should play popcorn music, you know, like when a movie goes to intermission in the old days. <laughs> uh, no, just again, go look at the gallery. You'll understand more when you see the pictures. It, it, these are not random pictures that happen to have Ukrainian colors. These are orchestrated, built images that amazingly tie in to what's happening in the world today. And uh, yeah, go, go check it out. Yeah. Um, I, I hope everybody does check out the show notes because there's, uh, uh, you know, the, these stories need to be read, not just listened to. 
And the next one, it, you know, this was from early on in the conflict, but these were really powerful images uh, published in uh, in May of 2022 by CNN. Uh, and I'm sure that they were published anywhere. And we've all probably seen snippets of these images, but it's a good collection of them from uh, the early months of this conflict. Uh, the photos that have defined the war in Ukraine. And the editor's note says right at the very beginning, the gallery contains graphic <coughs> images and viewer discretion is advised. You will see dead people if you pull up this link. And maybe you should. Uh, you know, I, I've i always uh, hated to see. It's like, oh, you know, why are you showing me images of, of things I really don't want to see? But you, just, you froze there on my end for a second, but that's no, no worries. You're back. <laughs> All right. Thank, thank, thank you. But by, by the way, this internet connection is coming from Starlink. And, uh, you know, there might be hiccups along the way uh, as we go through. But the the idea that, you know, we, we see images that we don't want to see, it's, it's powerful. Uh, it can maybe make us take action. And if we take action, maybe we can do better. Maybe we can do different. You know, to see Steve... I should just ask. Some of these images are powerful, happy. You know, there are people getting married. There are people in body bags. There are people being uh, extracted from a maternity hospital about to give birth. There are people fighting for other people to save their lives. There are children being read stories in uh, subway stations. There are people huddling under bridges. There are people battered and bruised. There are people taking their uh, soon-to-be-dead infant into a hospital trying to save their life. These images mean something. And they'll probably mean something different to everybody that looks at them, but you'll still be moved by them. And what do you think, Steve? Okay, so this is this is the story that, of the four that we're discussing for this show really affected me. You, you in fact, said something when you sent me the stories in advance so that I could kind of see what we're going to talk about. You, you used a phrase, we must not look away. It was in a sentence greater than that, but but those five words, and you referenced in the, in the last bit talking about the Holocaust. And I, I've got to say, if you've never been to a Holocaust museum, for example, you should. I am of Jewish heritage. I have known people in my life that were family friends very, very close family friends that had concentration camp numbers on their arm. I grew up seeing, because of my heritage, seeing films that documented the Holocaust. And as difficult as it was for me as a child to see some of those old black and white films documenting in full detail the Holocaust... It is of the utmost importance that we never forget. And out of sight, out of mind, seeing things is a reminder, documenting the human toll of evil, documenting the pain and the grief caused by evil, documenting any war crimes, documenting, I'm going to go the other way, documenting the spirit of survival are all extreme, like you say, there's weddings in here. There's a guy walking down the street as stuff is exploding in fire behind him. 
which is interesting because that's a picture I had seen when it came out. Photography and videography are the record keeping of war. Yep. We have to know that history and we cannot forget what is happening right now in Ukraine. And I remember uh, reading some of these stories <clears throat> as they were happening. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's somewhat paralyzing for me because I, I'm close. I mean, like <laughs> we, we don't know, um, at least in the early days, how far and how fast that conflict was going to spread. We had a, we had a, a, a go bag ready uh, at the door. Uh, we have potassium iodide pills because you, you, you didn't know in, in those days what was going to happen. But I remember one of the stories that really hit me when I, when I read it. And I read the story and then I saw the images later of, uh, of a man who was uh, communicating, uh, I think, via text message to his wife saying that they were uh, uh, about to, to, to leave. They were going to go and get in the car and they were going to uh, uh, head to safety. And then he didn't hear back. And then a few hours later, he saw that their phones were moving to the hospital and more specifically to the morgue. And uh, they had been hit uh, by uh, some sort of a shelling just leaving their house and uh, or their apartment and just on the street. And it's one of the first images in this series that shows that man's family dead on the street. It was and, all over the news when it happened, this this specific image, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I look at that and I think to myself, that, that, that could have been any, any of us. You know, it, it could have been, could have been me, could have been my family. Uh, you know, Bulgaria is a NATO country and in the European Union and we have protections uh, because of that. If... If Bulgaria wasn't a NATO member, it would have been a target of Russian aggression much earlier um, uh, than than Ukraine, because you know there's far less here, and it's a far smaller country. And without getting into the whole history of how Bulgaria was uh, liberated from the Ottoman Empire with the help of Russians, and the fact that Russia wanted Bulgaria to be a puppet state and an oblast of Russia uh, at that time, there's a lot of history there. Um, but we are safe. These people are not. And it's important to look and see what a, uh, <clears throat> a demonic bully on the world stage can accomplish and how we must prevent that from happening in the future. And so these photos, again, you've probably seen a lot of them before, but it's good to see them, the good, the bad, and the ugly again, to understand what photography is doing to tell this story. To tell this story, this is history in the making, and it's so important that we do not look away, as you said, Steve. So that is... Yeah, th this, this, is, um, this is the role, bringing this to photography, this, this is the role photography can aspire to play in humanity is yeah. letting you know when something amazing is happening and just as equally when there's something happening that is so horrible that we as humanity, as a collective, need to know about it. I agree. Well said. The final story 
for this episode of Photo Geek Weekly, and I in, uh, I intend to make it weekly again, folks. Uh, it's not going to be Photo Geek yearly. Uh, we have the next one lined up, as I said at the beginning. But uh, from F-stoppers. Again, this was very early in the conflict uh, from the first half of March of 2022 um, by Ilya Ovchar. Russia's war in Ukraine will leave a lasting scar on the photography industry. And I found this pretty interesting because I didn't see it from this perspective, but creative jobs basically disappear in a conflict zone, right? You, you're not going to be filming movies in Ukraine when it's at war. Uh, how many weddings are uh, just happening quietly, uh, you know, at the uh, registrar's office and not a big celebration? Um, how many uh, photographers are being sent to war, right? Uh, people of my age that are photographers, if I was in Ukraine, I would have a gun in my hand right now rather than a camera. I would still be shooting, but not with my preferred tool. Um, so you, you've looked at this list of all of these things, and there's some fun ones in this list too. I'm not going to be completely dire about it. Um, but it will, the photography industry in regions of conflict are going to uh, have a lasting impact, not just in Ukraine, but in Russia. As I mentioned, I've got a, a close friend that's uh, also a photographer in, in Russia um, that has been uh, greatly affected by this conflict. And even though you might be uh, vehemently against this conflict, um, just like in Belarus, you know, you try to rise up against your government and the government crushes you down so, so badly that you can't uprise again until the regime changes uh, by other means. So um, there's impacts across, uh, across the borders in this area. Uh, you've read the story, Steve. What do you think? So there's some, yeah, there's some interesting ones in here, and a lot of people don't realize the the tech industry, and I'm I'm saying tech, but I'm including photography in that. In Ukraine, Skylum. Most photographers have heard of Skylum or Luminar. That's a Ukrainian based company, right? There are in the world that I made my living in, which is IT. There are you know, world-renowned international IT companies with major branches in Ukraine. It's a very, very big hub for the arts and for for tech. And actually, before I go on, we should probably mention, before somebody says, you know, talking about lost jobs when you have a war going on, the author is very quick in this article to acknowledge that there are many more important things happening in the world than photography. Right. Yeah. But F stoppers is a photography site and therefore he's going to, and he's a writer that covers photography. So therefore this article is going to be based on how this affects photography, photography in a war, photography anywhere can be seen as spying, right? I have been photographing my nephew doing uh, portrait sessions of him in a parking lot and had a security guard come up to me. Actually, the funny thing was it wasn't a security guard. It was the owner of a like coffee shop came over and said, what are you doing? <laughs> And I said, I'm taking pictures of my nephew for his portfolio, for his modeling portfolio. He goes, well, how long are you going to be? I'm going to do it until I'm done. Well, you're making my security guard nervous. And I'm thinking to myself, then, then why didn't the security guard come over? Why did he send you? There's something wrong here. But anywhere photography can be seen 
as spying in a war zone that takes on a whole new meaning. How do you make a living when payment systems are down, when banks are under sanction, when countries are under sanction, when currency falls apart, right? Um, yeah. Import and export is down. Sales are hard to do. There's so many things that affect those people that are living in a war zone or possibly even just adjacent to a war zone because of sanctions or banking issues, movie production, television production, travel bans. Um, yeah, it, this is, it's actually a very interesting article to look at the effects of war on, for lack of a better phrase, the average daily creative worker. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a lot of it's negative and a lot of it will bounce back, but people have to reposition themselves and, and pivot into a different line of work. Um, but I, I do want to mention that there's this, um, this camera uh, arm that uh, is designed to be mounted on the top of a car or, you know, on its own, but it's this very versatile um, uh, camera movement crane system. It was originally called the Russian arm built and developed in Kiev in Ukraine. Uh, and it's used to film action car chase scenes and uh, all sorts of stuff. You've probably watched a movie that has used this equipment behind the scenes. It was originally called the Russian arm and now it's called the Ukraine. Uh, the letter U dash crane. And, uh, and I just, I absolutely love that so many people uh, various industries, they can, they can pivot too, right? You know, it, they can say, all right, well, we, we want to know what side of this we're going to be on. And we definitely, you know, if you're uh, in uh, a Kiev based company, uh, you really don't want to have a product that uh, uses the word Russia in it anymore. So, um, and there's been a whole cultural movement of people trying to, and you should, I should say that, in Ukraine, there's a lot of Russian-speaking people, especially when you go go further east. Uh, Russia is a second language. In fact, in, in a lot of cities, it is the dominant language in Ukraine, uh, just because of their proximity to to Russia and and to the history therein. So, uh, a lot of those people, uh, from what I've heard, have been trying to some degree to learn Ukrainian uh, versus Russian. And a lot of Slavic languages have some commonality in terms of words and grammar. Uh, it's not the same by any means. Bulgarian grammar is vastly different than Russian. Um, but at the same time, uh, you look at people saying, okay, well, they're embracing more their own national identity than they ever have before. Which goes back to the, the, uh, the, the first story, the, the interview with the, uh, the photographer um, where, you know, he was basically saying, you know, they, they, they can be crushed, but it's, it's going to be temporary. This is, uh, if, <clears throat> if Russia had completely occupied, uh, Ukraine, um, an, an occupying officer, you know, is it safe to drink your tea? Is it safe to, uh, you know, put your key in your ignition of your car? Is it safe to flip on the light switch in your office when when you've had your tea, driven your car, and you've gone to work 
in the morning. Um, there's a lot of, uh, of partisan uh, sabotage that is happening in, in Ukraine right now. And those people, <clears throat> they, uh, they, they're fighting back in many, many ways. And so uh, my, my heart goes out to them. And uh, Did you notice, by the way, in this article that they referenced Lindsay Adler and the fact, and this is an interesting side note to this, and that is that the war can affect the actual business operations of people not in Ukraine. For example, I mentioned IT companies there. If I had hired an IT company to help with a particular IT audit, yep. and then that IT company is not there to finish it. In this particular case, they're referencing retouchers. And he actually mentions that uh, world, some of the world's leading photographers, such as Lindsay Adler, are known to use retouchers from Ukraine and Russia. Now, I don't know and Belarus about Lindsay's matter, retouchers, but, yeah. but I do know that many, many people use retouchers from overseas, and it wouldn't surprise me that some use them from Ukraine. So this even touches the States or anywhere else where somebody may subcontract. Well, and, you know, I, I remember hearing it was uh, Porsche had to halt their production lines for a period of time uh, at the beginning of this conflict because one of the parts that they were using in their vehicles were manufactured in Ukraine or Russia um, and they were unable to get. I mean, if you could imagine that uh, even a simple like a gasket of some kind uh, that was manufactured in a country that is now in conflict and you can't get it. You have to then find a new supplier for that, go through a uh, preliminary production run to see if it fits and and uh, measures up in terms of quality before you give them, uh, you know, the go ahead to to produce uh, however many you need. That takes time, even from one simple part. Uh, manufactured in any of these countries could completely derail a complex industry. And we already had uh, issues with uh, computer systems and cars being delayed. Like we, we ordered a car in November of 2021 and we got it in September of 2022. And you know what? It, <laughs> It, it, it wasn't anything super fancy. It's a Volkswagen Polo. And yes, we got a faster version of it uh, and checked a couple of boxes for fancy seats and, uh, and a sunroof and all that. But um, you know, it's a Polo at the end of the day. And it, for people in, in North America that aren't familiar with what the Polo is, it's a Golf, but smaller. Uh, and I guess in the uh, United States and Canadian markets, everybody wants bigger cars. Uh, I saw Biden in a Hummer EV the other day and bigger is better in North America. Sure. I understand that. But if you've ever tried to drive on one way cobblestone streets in Europe, bigger is not good. Smaller is better. Uh, but the car industry as a long way of saying it had been affected by the conflict as well as many technology industries have been too. Uh, and you rebalance and you adjust you know, uh, just as a brief aside to uh, talk uh, geopolitics again for a bit, because that's what this episode is about. Uh, Bulgaria was a country that had uh, initially started supplying ammunition to Poland, uh, even though a good chunk of the government was vehemently against, that's, that's the word of this episode, vehement, um, uh, had been against uh, uh, sending any aid to Ukraine. So they sent it all to Poland and somehow it ended up in Ukraine. 
And the uh, ammunition manufacturing in Bulgaria has been going full tilt since the beginning of this conflict. But also, Bulgaria has one oil refinery on the Black Sea coast near Burgas, uh, just south of us. And they were getting tankers of Russian crude oil. And they were refining that into various products, including diesel. And you know where 40% of Ukrainians' diesel supply came from? Bulgaria. From the one refinery we had refining Russian fuel at a Luke Oil refinery, which is Russian-owned or at least affiliated, and sending all of that fuel back to Ukraine. It's amazing what what the world has done in terms of uh, technology and helping each other. And when there is a, a void, it can be filled from somewhat unlikely sources. Um, and so photography, I guess, has that void, but these people are going to bounce back in many different ways. There will be a scar on it for sure. Um, but yeah, there, there's a roundabout way of closing off that story. All right. That ends the stories for this episode of Photo Geek Weekly, but we're not done yet. We have our picks of the week. And Steve, I want you to go first. Okay. I will definitely go first because I love photography books. And I have a number of them. I have your book. I have, uh, you know, just in the last year or so, I've gotten a number of really good books, including Joe McNally's latest book. And there's a book I just picked up for two reasons. One of my favorite photographers out there doesn't photograph what I photograph, although he can. He, he does actually photograph music at times. Uh, but one of my favorite photographers is Pete Souza. Pete Souza. Former White House photographer, right? Exactly. He was the White House, official White House photographer for President Reagan. He was the official White House photographer and in charge of photography, I believe, for the White House under all eight years under Obama. He is an amazing journalist. He's actually a Pulitzer Prize winner, too, as well. Uh, when he was in the newspaper world. And he's got a number of different books out based on the Obama administration. And the latest one is The West Wing and Beyond, What I Saw Inside the Presidency. And I bought the book partially because I love Pete Souza's work. I really honestly think the way he photographs is so moving to me. Like every picture I see is like, I, I don't even know how you saw that and got that so perfectly. The other reason is he's going to be a guest on my show. And I wanted to have that book and look through it before I talked to him. But well, you this should. book is absolutely. And I'm looking yeah, forward to that episode. I can't wait. I, like, I don't know how I'll be able to speak. It's one of those, those type things. Uh, the book is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, Hudson Booksellers, IndieBound. I'm reading this from his website, PeteSouza.com, and the links are all there. Uh, his local bookstore in Madison, Wisconsin is Mystery To Me. I bought mine on Amazon. It is possible that he gets more money depending on where you buy it. So, And so well, what I'm actually going to do is I'm putting in the show notes the link to the publisher, uh, uh, Voracious. Um, and Voracious has a link on their website where uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, all, all that is there. Target and Walmart are there too. I don't know if anybody buys books from Walmart, but um, those are available to you. 
Uh, I don't and, and think I've that seen they are the selling book. it directly, but if you can find it from a smaller venue, buy books from smaller venues because yes. probably not only are you going to help that venue, uh, and they're all suffering in the shadow of Amazon, but you'll also probably get more money back to the publisher and then back to the author possibly as well. Authors do quite often make a different amount depending on where you buy the book from. And so the local bookstore to him, mystery to me, he may have a different deal with. Uh, the book is anywhere from, for a hardcover, it's also available as a Kindle book, but from a hardcover point of view, like around 28 and some change US. I think I've seen it as high as 35, That's but not bad. it is, it's sitting right next to me and it is beautifully done. Can't recommend it enough. Again, it's called The West Wing and Beyond, What I Saw Inside the Presidency by the amazingly talented Mr. Pete Souza. That is an excellent pick. And uh, I might have to pick up a copy myself. Got to find uh, somebody that's going to ship it to me here in Eastern Europe. But that shouldn't be too difficult a thing to do. Um, my my pick is, uh, it's also kind of going back to Ukraine, but it's also right back to my, uh, my photographic love of macro photography. And uh, so my pick is Helicon Focus. And I might have picked this previously in the podcast, but it deserves being picked again. You mentioned uh, Skylum, uh, Ukrainian-based company. Uh, Helicon Soft, that makes Helicon Focus, is also based in Ukraine. They're based in Kharkiv, uh, which is fairly close to the conflict. Uh, and the, the software itself is some of the most robust focus stacking software I think I've ever used. I mean, Photoshop has its, I, I use it for snowflakes and anything that's handheld because it's very forgiving uh, for that type of work. And it's easier to, uh, to correct for deficiencies within the software. And there's no perfect focus stacking algorithm. But when I'm on a focusing rail, and I'm calculating exactly how many uh, images are required over what distance, and it's all in order, and everything is buttoned down. And this is, uh, you know, as I've done some of the images that went into the public domain series, the butterfly scales and the diamonds and so on. Uh, they were they were done specifically uh, with Helicon Focus because it is the best software I have used to calculate the depth. There's three different modes in the software. I typically use uh, mode B or mode C, um, and it utilizes your GPU. And that is critical to, like, if I'm going to throw it 647 megapixel images, it'll chew through them very, very slowly, if not impossibly in Photoshop. It'll hit a limit and it just will crash. But Helicon Focus, and you know, Zarine Stacker is another one. I'll mention that they do it too, but they don't use the GPU. The GPU will allow the software to go through that so quickly that I, I kind of get up and I you know, just do some uh, yard work for 10 minutes or so, and it's done. Where Photoshop, I would have to go to bed and wake up in the morning and see if it actually did it or if it crashed. But uh, Helicon, uh, Helicon Soft makes Helicon Focus, and they do other things too. They have a, uh, a, a variable adjusting uh, extension tube to, to aid in focus stacking. So there's hardware, the Helicon FB tube, uh, and they've got some remote shooting software as well. Check them out. Uh, I bought a, a lifetime license to their software. If you have any interest in macro photography, throw some money their way. 
They're a good company. Their customer service is top notch. Uh, and uh, so that's my pick of the, uh, of the week. Uh, the lifetime license, uh, it's, uh, they're very clever here. They're showing me the prices in Bulgarian leva, so I can't even well, reference I, I've what it would be the, in dollars. I've got the prices in front of me in U.S. dollars, and, and there's are? the Helicon Focus Lite is a one-year license for $30, but a lifetime license for $115 U.S. And actually, I kind of like that because it's almost like renting. Like, look, if you want to try this and see if it's for you, 30 bucks, okay. And then if you do love it, you're only out 30 bucks, you pay the 115, but then they've got the Helicon Focus Pro, which is 55 for a year, 200 for a lifetime, and the premium 65 for a year, 240 US for a lifetime. Now, I've got the uh, Helicon Focus Pro package, uh, and I figured that was going to be the best for me. Uh, and if you to take a look at the, the the different features, the premium package adds the Helicon Remote Mobile. Uh, that's the only advantage that, that it has, and that's not a feature that I use. So the Pro package uh, was was going to be exactly what I wanted. Um, and uh, and one of the interesting things that it does, and I've tried this a couple of times with varying successes based on the subject, um, but there is a 3D model generation feature uh, because when you have depth information you can inherently create a 3D model from that one perspective. It's not going to be a fully rotational thing, but you could easily create a stereoscopic 3D image uh, when you have a very detailed depth map, which can be generated because you're providing all of this depth information in slices to the software. And so a 3D model is something that you can create. And that could be a lot of fun. Uh, So explore it. Even if it's just, again, on the monthly basis, throw some money at it. See if it's what uh, what you want to have in your toolkit. But I love the fact that there is a lifetime license and they keep updating it on a regular basis. So Helicon Focus. Uh, check that out, everybody. And, uh, and thanks for listening to this episode of Photo Geek Weekly. And, and thank you, Steve, for being the guest to bring this show back to life. I couldn't have done this with anybody but you. And I greatly appreciate your input, your conversation, and really just your opinions and personality that you bring to the table. You could have done it with literally anybody else but me, but I appreciate the sentiment. And really, honestly, for me, I've wanted you to get back into this so badly, and we've talked about it privately. And and I'm just so glad that today's the day that Photo Geek Weekly comes back because it's not only one of mine, but a lot of people that I know It's one of their favorite podcasts because you get such a good variety of guests with different, you know, varying opinions. So again, welcome back to the uh, podcasting world, my friend. Oh, I appreciate it. And thank you all for listening. If you're just picking this episode up for the first time, welcome to the new era of Photo Geek Weekly. If you're seeing this ping on your phone because there's an update to a podcast you forgot about for a long time, thanks for checking in. Uh, And for everybody that has been waiting for this, I appreciate your patience. I've gotten a couple of emails from people saying, hey, where'd you go? At least give us a courtesy goodbye. I'm not going to give you a goodbye when I intend to come back. And here we are. And it's been a while. But now it's time to get out and shoot.